0: Friends, if you want to get your Bibles out, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 together. Matthew 13. So there once was a farmer. He lived in an agrarian society out in the country. Far from cities, banks, ATMs. He had no credit card. No cell phone. He didn't even have a tractor for his farming. It was him and his ox. They they worked a rented field. As we as we catch up with our farmer, we find him plowing, walking along behind the ox. He's overturning the earth, and he is uncovering rock, rock after rock. And he'll he'll reach down and he'll pick one up and he'll he'll toss it over to the side. You know where that stone wall is on the edge of the field that's been built up generation after generation of farmers tossing rocks to the side and now there's this rock wall and he takes a few more steps and he hits something else but as he looks down he sees a glint, and it's gold and he, and he reaches down and he picks up this large gold coin and he's staring at it but then he looks down to where that coin was and there was another underneath it and he gets down on his knees and he He picks that one up, and another, and another, and another, and the more he digs, the more he finds. This is each coin more than he has seen in his lifetime. This is hundreds of lifetimes of wealth that he is coming across, and he begins to look around. He quickly takes those coins, puts them back in the earth, covers them up, runs, sells all that he has, and buys the field. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. There once was a merchant. Now, what do merchants do? They buy and sell things, right? So picture this back in camel days, right? So you go to one town, and you know what they produce there, what they're good at. You buy it there. You put those things on a camel, walk a couple hundred miles, or whatever, and sell it somewhere else for more. That's how you make your living. This person, rather intelligently, did that with pearls. I say intelligently because I imagine a camel can carry a lot of pearls, right? As opposed to, I don't know, armchairs, right? Seems an easier thing to to transport. So he's an expert in pearls. He makes it his living to go and find an undervalued pearl, purchase it, and go sell it somewhere else. And that's how he makes his profit, So in the town he's walking through, he comes to a merchant and he he sees a pearl, unlike any he's ever seen, and it simply takes his breath away. And in the moment, he decides that he's no longer a merchant, he's a consumer, and he liquidates his entire business to purchase that pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. This morning we pick up with our series, A King Like No Other, and as we do that, our king is teaching in parables. Throughout Matthew 13, this is a a chapter of parables, and he's teaching now in verse 44 down through 46, what his kingdom is actually like. What's the nature of the kingdom of heaven? What's the essence of it? What's the value of it? Now, he's speaking in parables. Parables are meant, on one hand, to hide the truth from skeptics. And on the other, to reveal truth to God's children. So what I want to do is, I want to read these few verses, just 44 through 46, and then I want to pause and pray that the Lord would reveal truth to us through this. So Matthew 13, verse 44 and following. Let's pray again. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence among us right now. You, you have been at work here, and we are grateful. But we are dependent on your continued work. You who breathed out these words that we're reading, who inspired this sacred text, would you now do the work within us to illuminate it to our hearts, that we would understand what Christ is seeking to communicate, that we would be transformed by it, apply it by your strength and power. We pray that you'd reveal treasure today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, so three things we want to look at in these two so similar parables three uh, points we want to consider. And the first is the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. So the farmer finds the treasure in the field, and the merchant finds the pearl, and they both go and do the very same thing. They both go and sell everything that they have. Acquiring the treasure does not come cheap. Buying the pearl is not easy. Discipleship is a costly endeavor. Christ speaks about the cost of discipleship frequently. Here in Matthew, I'll give you two examples. Back in Matthew 10, 37, this is what he says, speaking of our closest human relationships, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Then down in Matthew 16, 24, he talks about following him. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Perhaps you've heard That salvation is free. You have been wrongly informed. Salvation will cost you everything. That's what this parable is pointing to. The merchant and the, the farmer both liquidate all their earthly goods. This is what we would call a massive realignment of priorities. Right? Massive. It's as big as it gets. They were going one direction, living for one thing, and in a moment, everything changed. They turned their back on everything that they had been about and began to to walk differently about something else. Discipleship is costly. Notice that there is an exchange going on here, right? There's an exchange that they have of all that they had for the treasure that they're seeking, for us, this would be all that I have for all that he is. That's that's the, that's the exchange. All of me for all of him. To sell it all, to surrender it all, take this world, but give me Jesus. It's the cost of discipleship. Now, you can't misunderstand what the parable is about. One of the difficulties, I'd say, with parables, is that you can press into some of the details too far, and take them to be saying things that were not intended, kind of creating meaning that was not there in Christ's understanding of the parables. So yes, salvation will cost us everything, but that does not mean that we purchase salvation, because we can't. Purchase it. Yes, there's an exchange. All that I have for all that He is. But we shouldn't somehow think then that we've paid for salvation. Not at all, friends. You cannot afford salvation. You don't have the tenth or the smallest fraction of what it would take to acquire to purchase salvation from the hands of God. Selling does not somehow give us like sufficient spiritual capital. To then go buy this gift of God. Rather, what selling does is we walk in before the Lord with arms full of earth stuff. And we put it down. And we open our arms so that He can freely fill them with Him. It is a gift to us. The, the selling component is, is repentance. It's putting down all those other things that we used to love first, used to live for, that we could open our arms and receive what God will give. That's what repentance is. It's it's an act of of emptying our hands that God may then fill them. Okay, so to review, a couple points that we're seeing. Salvation is not free. It will cost you everything. But that does not mean that you purchased it. But that does not mean that it's not purchased. Right. Yeah. It is purchased. It is paid for. Mm-hmm. A transaction occurs. Salvation has been purchased by the one who's teaching in this yes. passage. The parable teacher knew that he himself was on his way to purchasing salvation on behalf of his people. Friends, this was, this was a greater exchange. Yes, there's a an exchange, all I have for all that he is. But this is the great exchange when Christ came down and, and exchanged all of his righteousness for all of our sins. All the righteousness that was his, he gives it to his people. And he takes our sin upon himself. Each of them. All of them. I'm wearing a, a coat today, right? And it's my coat. But you can imagine having somebody put up a borrowed coat over your shoulders. Here comes Christ, taking off his robe of righteousness putting it across your shoulders. Keep it. That's the exchange that he did. And it wasn't just sin for righteousness, it was also his life for our death. He gives us life and he took our death. The wages that our sin deserved. The specific punishment for our lust and our greed And our gossip, and our selfishness, and our materialism, he took upon himself. That was the price paid for salvation. And he paid it. And he paid it all. Salvation has been purchased once and for all. He paid the down payment. No, the full payment of our salvation. Well, it's just a down payment, as though there's something left for you to pay. Friend, there's nothing left for you to pay for salvation. It has been entirely paid by Jesus Christ. Ours is simply to open our hands, put down the other stuff, that he could fill them with what he's given to us. Okay, so, first thing we notice in the passage is the cost of discipleship the cost of discipleship. The second is the value of the kingdom. The value of the kingdom. I want to back up to the passage again and notice how both of these parables start. They both start like this. The kingdom of heaven is like... Then then in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like... Jesus begins both of these parables with those words. It's like treasure that's of such value it's worth selling everything and buying a field. It's like this pearl that's so amazing that it's worth getting rid of everything to acquire the pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. What does that refer to? What's that phrase, kingdom of heaven? What is, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, in the, the largest sense, the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of Christ breaking in upon the earth. That's what he's announcing at this stage, that, that he is there to bring it, the king is here to bring his kingdom to earth. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth. Okay, what makes it so valuable? What is it about the kingdom of heaven that makes it so valuable, of such inestimable worth? We might quickly think of the forgiveness of sin, and we should, objective forgiveness from God for all that we have done, a clean slate before God, the the removal then of all future wrath and punishment that was due to us in our sin, completely gone. I think you could make an argument, and it would be a very sensible argument, that that would be a a phenomenal trade to take the whole world, get rid of that, and, and have forgiveness in return. That's in the picture, but it's not in the center of the frame. There's objective forgiveness. You know, there's also subjective forgiveness. That's, that's the experience that we have of being forgiven. The experience of having guilt removed, of shame taken away, of, of, of despair being cast out and hope being birthed in the heart. That is a precious thing, and I would argue that's worth the world as well but we're not at the center of the frame. Well, perhaps what Christ is talking about is not so much the negation of judgment, but the addition of eternal life. We can talk about eternal life. Entrance into heaven. A place prepared for you by Christ himself. Streets of gold. The fruit of the tree of life to eat. Myriads upon myriads of angels. And yes, again, that's in the picture. But no, again, that's not in the center of the frame. Well, let's go back to the definition of the kingdom of heaven. It must, it must be the reign of Christ. This is a precious truth. When he reigns, his wisdom will dictate All affairs. His justice will direct all outcomes. His love will govern all activities. Friends, this is a world set right. Think about the world outside these doors. Think about the reign of Christ perfectly. All that this world would hope for in terms of diversity and equality, that it grasps after again and again, in the reign of Christ, will be finally and fully and beautifully realized. Lord, speed the day. That's in the picture. But it's not the center of the frame. What is? Christ talked about it over in John 17. He, ta- he described eternal life in one particular way. He says, this is, this is how the verse begins, this is eternal life, and he goes on to define it that this is eternal life. And he doesn't say, he doesn't say, well, that their sins are forgiven. This is eternal life that they are free from guilt. This is eternal life that they have access to heaven, that they can live forever, that they experience the reign of Christ. No, he says this, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. The treasure of the kingdom of God is not the gifts of God. It is the person of God. It is God Himself. This is what He offers you. In that sense, it's not about forgiveness. And it's not about heaven. And it's not about justice. It's about Him. And the beautiful thing is, when you're in Christ, All the gifts of Christ are yours as well. To acquire the treasure is to be with him. To lay hold of the pearl is to relate with God. To know God the Father through the work of God the Son by the infilling of God the Spirit. This is the treasure of the kingdom. It's not his gift, it's his person. More rightly said, it's not a gift, it's his person's father, son, and spirit. Ours, through Christ. You know, if there was a Christian that ever knew the cost of discipleship and the value of the kingdom, it was Paul. He knew what it was like to sell all that he had and to follow Christ. He valued the kingdom as a treasure found in a field, as a pearl of great price. He tells us about it in his testimony in Philippians 3.8, which was already read this morning. It's just remarkable to me how the Lord weaves a service together, even amongst folks that didn't talk about it. This was already read. I'll read it again. Paul's testimony. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What's Paul's testimony here? I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of sins forgiven, justice on earth, debts canceled. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. For his sake. The treasure is Jesus. The pearl is Jesus. And through him, knowing the Father. And that brings us to our third and final point. So we've talked about the cost of discipleship. Talked about the value of the kingdom. And now I want to close by looking at the face of the disciple. The face of the disciple. Can you see that farmer? Out in the field, he had them been sweating, right? He's working out in the sun behind the ox. He finds the treasure, and now we encounter him, and he's running home to sell everything. Look at his face. Is it consumed by concern over the cost of this treasure? It will cost him everything. Is he in despair? over having to turn his back on everything he's ever been about. Everything he knows. Is he despondent over the situation and all that's going to have to pass through his fingers in order to buy this field. No, he is not. There is, Christ draws our attention to his face in the parable. There is one attitude in his face, one look on his eye, and that is joy. It is joy. It says, in his Joy. He goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Why? What's wrong with this guy? He's losing everything and he's glad about it. He's joyful about it. I'll tell you, from the outside, he looks like a fool. He looks reckless. You know? Have you heard about that guy selling all he had to buy that field? I got a field. I'll sell him. Sounds. Great! The farmer knows better because he's seen the treasure. That's the difference. He has seen the treasure. He knows what he's after. It isn't the field. It's the treasure that he's after. And he knows from his look at the treasure that it is worth far Far more than everything he's giving up to get it. it. This pittance, Absolutely. These pennies? No problem. All this? Just crumbs. I want that. I don't have the chance of what it takes to get that, but I can have it. He is consumed with joy. What about Paul? Remember his testimony verse? He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He counted everything as a loss, yes. But what else do you count them as? Rubbish. Recycling. Refuse. Worthless. Just Worthless. So, let me ask you, how does all of life, everything you've ever held valuable, every relationship you've ever had, every dream and hope and aspiration, suddenly become worthless? It's not some mental trick. It's not something you can talk yourself into. All right, that's how I ought to. See, that's, that's not it. Because I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth. That's why everything becomes loss, because there is something of surpassing worth. It's not that all that we have on our own is worthless. It's that there is something of surpassing worth. Paul would tell us, knowing Christ is of such magnificence, of such extravagance, of such lavish wealth, of such surpassing worth, that everything else is as nothing. Everything becomes as nothing. Next to knowing him. Broken trinkets, rusted spoons, what do I need that for? I can have him. How can we apply this? What's that look like? I think we should consider again the joy that we see on the farmer's face. Where did that joy come from? The joy came from seeing the treasure, from seeing the pearl. That is the the wellspring of his joy. The merchant's joy is found in the pearl, the farmer's joy is found in the pearl. In the treasure. The disciples' joy is found in Christ. Where is your joy found? I encourage us to learn again what we once knew. It is easy, dear saints, to having once laid hold of Christ, to then begin to pick back up other things. And to get one arm full of all this and getting kind of hard to carry the treasure to. One of the things about the treasure is that it is hidden in the field. It's not right on the surface. All of life is right on the surface. All the world, this take the world beginning Jesus, all the world is right there on the surface. You can see it, taste it, touch it, know it. It's right there. It will always be there so long as we live in this life, beckoning us back to do an inverse treasure exchange. Or at the very least, to just focus a bit on these other things that order and forget a bit about Christ. Brenda, the treasure of Christ is a treasure hidden in the field. I think there's two applications for us in this and one is repentance it, it it is laying down afresh whatever we've been holding instead of Christ whatever we've been looking to for satisfaction instead of him whatever we've been valuing most above him there's a there's a reality you cannot hold two things in first place so we're called to repent But I think we're also called to a dependence on the Holy Spirit. Because the treasure is hidden in the field. And we cannot see it apart from the work of the Spirit. I can tell you all about beholding Christ. But hearing about it is different than doing it. And there's nothing I can tell you. Go home and do X, Y, Z and you will behold Christ. You must have the Holy Spirit lead you back to Him again and again and again. Are there things we can do? Absolutely. Get your word. Get in prayer. Be in fellowship. Forsake sin. But at the end of the day, we are utterly dependent on Him who gives us vision to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the Spirit of God. So I want to close by praying that the Spirit would be at work in us. Revealing Christ afresh to us. So how about worship team, you can make your way up. And let's, let's go to the Lord and pray together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would gently, even now, reveal in each one listening what is in our hands that keep us from clinging to Christ. Would you reveal and convict and give us the gift of repentance, of laying down all other treasures for the sake of following you. But God, salvation is about both repentance and faith. So Spirit, we pray that you would be at work in us to behold Christ more clearly. That joy would not be to us some kind of checklist thing we've got to put on. It would just be welling up from our beholding of Him and our seeing Him. Only you can do this. Would you give us eyes to see the treasure as valuable and wonderful and worth our all? And as we come to you in this way, we remember that though we come confessing sin, repenting, become come in full confidence. Because we didn't purchase salvation to start with. You did. You have purchased it for us sinners, and we are grateful. So we look to you, Christ. You are our hope. Help us treasure you with all that we are, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.